Hi, everyone. This is Britta Wedling, and you are listening to the first edition of the new Bits and Pretzels podcast, the podcast for founders and entrepreneurs, investors, and decision makers. Bits and Pretzels is Europe's leading founder festival right here in Munich, Bavaria. Home to the pretzel, to Oktoberfest and to Bits, of course. Creating the next generation of companies. Welcome to the show. Today I'm meeting with Albert Wenger in Manhattan, New York. Albert is the managing partner at Union Square Ventures, one of the top venture capital firms in tech that has also invested in several European companies. I do still think that... Um Europe continues to have self-inflicted mistakes on regulation. Um, it's all well-meaning regulation, uh, but GDPR is a great example. Uh, many people, myself included, predicted that GDPR was going to help Google and Facebook uh, and hurt startups, and it did because the issue is that Google and Facebook can hire lots and lots of people to be GDPR compliant. A small startup can't do that. Albert has been living in the U.S. forever, but was born in a small town close to Nuremberg, Germany. We talked about why many investors have stopped dropping by in Silicon Valley and what they are looking at in Europe instead. And of course, we took a look at the challenges European founders are likely to encounter when they're expanding to the U.S. Hey, Albert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. You know what? You are kind of responsible for me leaving my old job in Silicon Valley. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I hope that worked out well for you. Actually, I remember last time we met, it was in Munich uh, and I was still working at Handelsblatt in Silicon Valley. And we talked so much about the European ecosystem and how it's kind of thriving and how Silicon Valley investors, investors in general don't take the plane to Silicon Valley anymore, but go to Europe, check out the European ecosystem instead. So that kind of gave me some thinking. Um, so how do you look at, you know, this development right now, like a couple of months after we last spoke. Do you still see this kind of ecosystem thriving? Um, how do you look at that? Yeah, I, um, we continue to see really interesting opportunities coming out of Europe. Um, we just signed a term sheet for a company out of London, for example. Um, can't disclose it yet, but it's a brand new deal. And um, they've built something very innovative um, where there isn't an immediate equivalent here in the US. So There was this idea around for some time that European startups were just copying U.S. startups, but uh, that's definitely not the case anymore. Um, there are lots of original startups, and if anything, there are now some U.S. startups that are copying or have copied um, uh, Europe. Uh, I mean, Guilt Group here was a, a copy of Mont Privé in uh, France. So uh, interesting things happening, and we're active. What do you think it's special about the European startup ecosystem that then U.S. companies try to copy? Well, there are a couple of things that are interesting about Europe. One is most European startups take a immediately global view um, because most of them realize they're not going to be huge in whatever European country they're in. So if you let's say, started in Denmark, uh, you realize you're not going to be a huge company in Denmark. And so people take a sort of global approach from day one. Um, the other is that there isn't necessarily an obsession with the latest fad of what to do. Um, people are 
I think, thinking independently because they're not caught up in the sort of bubble that is um, Silicon Valley. So that's been helpful for us as USV being based in New York. Uh, it's been easier to form truly independent opinions about the kind of things we want to invest in. So uh, being not in the echo chamber helps a lot, I think. When we look at the venture fund that's going into European startups, there was like record um, volume uh, in the two first quarters of 2019 was 20 billion, I think around 20 billion. Do you think this trend will continue? I believe so. Um, as long as people start interesting companies, the new Europe-focused funds continue to be raised also. So there's both capital, um, plus, of course, all the US, big US-based funds are investing in Europe. So I see no reason for that, uh, for that trend to stop. It's also true that, um, you know, there are big companies that have globally recognized names that have come out of Europe. Um, TransferWise is an example. Um, we were investors in Funding Circle, which went public. Uh, the stock hasn't traded particularly well, but uh, I think that has more to do with the overall view of the sector. But it's a company that has built a global business, in, in this case out of London. Um, Clue in Berlin, where we're investors, um, is growing all around the world. Uh, so I think as long as you get more of these stories, um, N26, again, we're not investors in Neobank out of, out of Berlin. I now see N26 advertisements here in New York City. So uh, I just think, you know, you, you get this sort of perception of an ecosystem uh, and And it takes a long time to change that perception and it changes over time. So I, I think New York is a really good analogy here. First, people were like, well, New York, you know, there's a tech ecosystem here, but it's not very big. And then people were like, yeah, it's sort of big, but there've been no big exits. And then you get things like Etsy and MongoDB and Shutterstock and so forth. Uh, and then people are like, well, but there's no real tech tech here. And then you get... There's um, WeWork. Yeah, well, we can talk about <laughs> WeWork in a second. But, but the point is, To change perception of how much is happening takes a long time. And, and so it took a long time for New York to really establish itself as the well-recognized um, place for tech that it now is. Uh, and Europe is on that trajectory. And so with every big exit in Europe, with every big funding, that perception of, oh, no, there's not enough here is changing and breaking down. And so I think it's a very positive development. And the perception is important because as an investor and as a company, you always tell like a certain story. Well, why yeah, would you say it, that? Um, Don Valentine, who's the founder of Sequoia, who just passed away, said, you know, fundraising is all about the story and the stories you can tell. And for a while, all of those stories were like, Right here in Silicon Valley, um, that's the story and that's a central aspect of the story. Uh, now, the story increasingly is we're growing at this rate. It doesn't matter where we're based or we are solving a difficult problem. It doesn't matter where we're based. Uh, and, you know, um, here's yet another European, I think, interesting story, GitLab. Um, so with a completely decentralized model, no office, everybody working remotely. So it, it's important in the sense that 
sometimes when people have a perception of you, of a city or of a region, uh, if that's not part of your story, then there's something that you have to overcome. But now that the perception has changed, I think it's a net positive. Do you think it has something to do with the perception people have about Silicon Valley? It has, it used to be this big like valley of gold where everybody was going to and, you know, was lucky or wasn't lucky. Now we talk about big tech companies um, and there's a big discussion in Washington as is like in, in the European Union about breaking up these tech companies. There's this debate and this discourse around how big companies are bad for innovation. Do you think that has something to do with this change of perception or is this like just a coincidence? I don't think that's just a coincidence. Um, there's definitely a sense in which... Uh, You know, Google, which had don't be evil sort of as its motto, which they eventually basically silently scrapped. Um, Facebook, which, you know, many people were excited to be working at Facebook because you can reach this truly global audience. And isn't that exciting? Many people are sort of like, wow, we really did make a lot of mistakes that had a lot of severe consequences. So I don't think that's coincidental. Um, the other thing that's really happened there is that Uh, there's been no housing construction, you know, not in San Francisco and not in the Valley. And so real estate prices have just escalated to a point where it's virtually impossible for people to uh, live there in a way that makes economic sense. That reflects itself then in an ever-increasing wage spiral. Uh, and when you combine that with sort of a somewhat mercenary attitude about equity and sort of saying, hey, um, if my options don't seem to be worth anything here, I'll jump ship and go somewhere else and I'll jump ship again. Uh, it's gotten to a point where um, several of the companies that we're investors in that are in San Francisco slash the Valley are basically not growing the employee footprint there at all. And they're opening second and third offices in places like Seattle or Toronto or in Europe for that matter. Interesting. And Amazon is also like opening a big office here, as did uh, Google and many other companies. Um, there's this discourse in San Francisco about tech taking over San Francisco, taking over everything. Um, you mentioned um, housing and rent prices. Is this something that could happen to New York or is it like impossible to take over New York even for tech? Well, never say never, but I... I think it's a super low likelihood event. Uh, New York is just, it's very large. It's much larger than San Francisco. And there are many, many more industries here. Uh, we have obviously a big financial services footprint. There's fashion, there is um, traditional content, there is advertising. Now, advertising has become more tech. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of other things that go on in New York um, that, Uh, are separate from tech. And, and so I, I doubt it. Now, having said that, if you look at a state like Berlin, uh, the tech growth in Berlin definitely is what has filled much of the office space there. And so it used to be when one of our companies wanted to open a Berlin office or our Berlin-based existing companies, it used to be that we never thought about, oh, how much is the next office going to cost? And now that's definitely a question where people are like, okay, we need a larger office that's going to you know, increase the, our expense significantly. Was it like a moment where you thought, well, we should do 
invest more in Europe or how did this, you know, focus kind of came up at your company? Well, or is it because you are from Europe yourself? <laughs> I actually, um, several of my partners made European investments before I made my first European investment. So no, it was more, a, a, we've always been very thesis driven. We've always been sort of looking for companies that do specific things. Uh, and um, Like, for example? Well, a good example is um, when um, I became interested in this question of how can um, smartphones help people with their health, uh, one of the things I recognized was that there were going to be more women in the world with access to a smartphone than with access to birth control. Uh, and that smartphones were going to be revolutionizing um, women's access to understanding sexual and reproductive health. Uh, I realized that um, as a result of a trip I took to Africa. And after I came back from that trip, I was like, well, I should find all the companies that are doing things. And at the time, um, the two companies I really started to focus in on were Glow, which was based in San Francisco, and Clue, which was based in Berlin. So it was sort of the having the idea and then searching based on the idea that ultimately led me to Clue. You mentioned N26, and it's really funny because the advertising is right down the street, like pretty much like around the corner. Uh, there's N26 and there's also Flixbus, both two European companies now coming to the US market. Is this a recent trend that you see that European or especially specifically German companies are looking more into going internationally, like quickly? Well, I, I'm not sure how quickly it is necessarily. I mean, Flixbus has grown into a big business in Europe um, before it decided to come here. Uh, it's a really important um, uh, distinction as to um, when and how you approach the U.S. market. Uh, I think there was a time period when German companies sort of, or European companies generally were like, well, we should actually just relocate the company to the U.S. and we should focus on the U.S. market. That never really worked. I don't. I didn't think that was a really good model. Um, and you know, frankly, when we invested in Shapeways, which was based in the Netherlands, they relocated here and it almost killed the company. And in retrospect, why? I, well, because it turns out that business culture here is very different, and um, the customs and hiring and go to market and it's all somewhat different. And so, uh, I do. I've come to conclude that if you want to, if you're European-based and you want to expand in the U.S., you really need to feel like your European business is doing very well and you understand you understand what you're doing and you understand how you're going to grow. Um, and this is especially true for a business like Flixbus, for example, where you know regional presence really matters a lot. If you're a lightweight global consumer software business or other software business, it might be easier. But if, if regional presence matters, then I think making sure you've got your home market really well working before you come here and then making a really concerted effort and putting people on the ground here and hiring people locally who know what they're doing. Um, there's an interesting program called German Accelerator here in New York. Um, and Christian Bush is one of the people who runs that um, is a friend and also actually a limited partner in our fund. Uh, he was actually here in this room earlier for our annual meeting. 
Um, and there are some improving resources also for, for how to do this and how to do it well. But you say that companies now decide to not fully move over to the US, but they stay in the European market and just open like a secondary place. Yeah, yes. Um, but, I, but, but, you know, founders need to realize that they're going to need to pay serious attention to the US market if they want to succeed here. And so usually it means if you have sort of a group of co-founders that one person decamps and, you know, or the founder needs to shuttle back right. and forth a lot to, right. to actually be on the ground here. I was talking to Ida Tin, mm -hmm. like the Clue uh, co-founder, and she talks a lot about ethics and values in technology, which I think is really like a really important thing. And this is something that's on your mind a lot as well in terms of, you know, shaping the next generation of leaders, um, looking for technology that really has kind of a, kind of value. Is this something that you make your investment decisions based on or what kind of trends or what kind of um, metrics are you looking at when before you make an investment in a company? Well, uh, uh A big focus as for, for us has been how can you build a trusted brand? And that's become a focus for us because we believe that if you can build a trusted brand, that's something that is sort of a long-term defensible competitive advantage. And if you uh, abuse your users, then over time you will have trouble with your brand. So we're very focused on what can companies do early on, uh, including from a business model perspective, so that they can set themselves up to build long-term trust. And if you take the specific case of um, period tracking apps, uh, there are other companies in the space that uh, did some sort of growth hacking, that did some selling of data uh, that um, we think may have helped them in the short term uh, and maybe they'll get away with it, maybe not, but is more likely to have the risk of causing lasting brand damage and damage in the relationship with the end user. So uh, now, how do we approach this early on in an investment? We approach it early on by having a lot of discussions with the founders to understand whether their goal is to sort of try and write a trend that they've identified or whether their goal is to build something that lasts and is going to be around and they're building it for the long term. We're very patient long-term investors, so we're never interested in the quick flip. Uh, we're interested in long-term value creation. How do you find that out if somebody's really, we really wants to build something? Are there like any, I don't know, characteristics or like anything else that you can, you know, Evaluate in a way. There isn't a single sort of like ask this magic question and discover the answer approach. It's just uh, over the course of getting to know somebody that does tend to emerge. Even how people first start to talk about what they're doing. I mean, if sort of people sort of say, "Well, I you know." Um, looked at these seven different opportunities and decided this was the fastest growing. And, you know, that's maybe not the kind of founder that we're interested in. But conversely, if it's somebody who's sort of, I've spent a lot of time in this particular area and I kept running up against this problem and and I was frustrated that nobody was solving this problem and here's how I'm solving this problem. 
Um, and then when you ask them questions uh, about, you know, what they think some of the next steps are, or some of the implications, or some of the potential problems, you can often uncover whether somebody's thought hard about a problem or whether somebody's just chasing what everybody else seems to be chasing. A good example for that uh, has been our crypto investing. So, you know, crypto, there was sort of this explosion in 2017 when the price of uh, Bitcoin ran up and of many other coins. And there were just a lot of people who were flooding into the market because they thought it was an opportunity to get rich quickly. And some did, actually. Well, always. I mean, whenever there's a gold rush, somebody gets rich quickly. Uh, people get rich in casinos, too, all the time. So it just doesn't mean that it's a reproducible thing. Uh, but we spend a lot of our time talking with the teams about the actual technical aspects of their approach, how they were thinking about specific problems of whether it's scalability or privacy or whatever the case may be. And you can see quite rapidly how deep somebody can go. And if they can't go deeper than you as the investor, then there's a problem. Is there like some learnings that the venture capital industry or you specifically had from the recent Wall Street stories around WeWork or Uber, because you mentioned growth hacking and you know growing rapidly, growing fast, and there was like a lot of big expectation uh, expectations in these unicorns, and now this kind of expectations, you know, which is probably not surprising to people who know the area, didn't really you know turn out to be good investments, at least for some investors. Is this something where you where you say, well, we should have known or this is what we can learn or this is what entrepreneurs can learn from this? Well, you made an important um, clarification here. Um, early investors in Uber still had extraordinary returns. So you provided this clarification because it turns out that early investors in Uber still made uh, phenomenal returns. It's a little more a question of what happens to valuation trajectories. And there are really uh, two important things to be learned there. One is that uh, we are in an environment where things that are growing very fast can command very high multiples. And those multiples tend to reflect growth more than they tend to reflect thinking about the long-term economics of a business. So WeWork's valuations were driven by people being excited about how many buildings they were adding, how many tenants they were adding, how quickly their revenue was growing, etc. And not enough people sort of took a step back and sort of said, gee, what are the sort of fundamental um, economics of this business? We saw several rounds uh, in WeWork, not the earliest rounds, um, but some of the sort of second and third rounds, and we just couldn't make... We thought it was a really interesting business. So you th you thought about investing, or well, like we looked at it, and uh -huh. we 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 people asked us whether we wanted were interested in investing. I mean, you know, WeWork was raising a lot of capital, so they had to talk to a lot of people. Um, but uh, again, it's important to distinguish between is something fundamentally a good idea, and it's very clear that. Something like WeWork, something like Uber and Lyft, they're all really good ideas. Um, need to distinguish between that and getting way ahead on valuations. Uh, I don't believe that the corrections in Uber and Lyft's public stocks or 
you know, WeWorks near implosion are going to have these massive ripple effects. And the reason I don't believe that is because a lot of people knew that those valuations weren't right. And so it wasn't like some surprise where you look at a company that everybody has sort of broad agreement on that it's the correct valuation. When when a company like that falters, that I think has a much bigger effect. But here where a lot of people were like, those valuations don't make sense to us, when then they come down, people are like, well, yeah, it's not a surprise. Uber and Lyft are another great example, like really great ideas. I mean, cars are mobile, people who need transportation are mobile, giving them apps to match them up, it's a great idea. Um, is a 30% take rate sustainable? Are these markets stable? What does the equilibrium look like? I mean, those were all like important questions. Is there a global network effect or just this buy per city network effect? I mean, China didn't work out for Uber. For well, in, and interestingly enough, in a way, it probably did because when you own Uber shares, you own a part of Didi as well um, because they did this big share swap. So, and that it's hard to value what the embedded value of the right. DD stake is. But so, they paid, at least they paid a lot of money for it. Yeah. My point is just, I think, it's very easy to, in this business, whether as an investor or as somebody writing about it, it's very easy to be either too excited on the upside um, or too critical on the downside. And um, unfortunately, because everything seems to be compressed into sound bites, there isn't much room for sort of a more differentiated argument. But I think that's really what's needed. It's to look at something like WeWork and be able to say, yes, there was ridiculous excess and um, Adam Newman clearly is a very questionable leader of anything. At the same time, to be able to say there's something really fundamentally important about taking the real estate model and moving it away from 10-year leases and moving it away from, um, you know, kind of a locked-in rigor uh, into a much more flexible system. There's a really good and important idea here. And, you know, other people like Notel and others are executing on that as well. So I'm just always a believer and let's not try and tell too simplistic a story, either on the way up or on the way down about these companies. Another aspect of this is SoftBank, obviously. Uh, SoftBank came in with huge, you know, a lot of money with the Vision Fund investing in Uber, in WeWork. Um, do you see like a power shift now that some of the investment thesis that SoftBank made didn't turn out? I always thought that the um, impact of SoftBank on the market was exaggerated. I think people were... Sort of saying, oh my God, you know, SoftBank is ruining everything for everybody. And it just feels to me a little bit too like a convenient excuse. Uh, many other companies have raised lots of money. And, um, uh, and I think we all know in the venture business that too much money is m mostly bad for companies. So, you know, uh, Lyft was able to raise money without um, necessarily and large sums of money. Uh, but slightly less, and maybe they were their execution was more disciplined. Um, we were in a company that was called Halo, merged into My Taxi. It's not part of Daimler. We're still investors. Uh, that business has been growing phenomenally fast um, in a much more capital efficient way because they had less money. So, um, people who I think sort of said, "Oh my God, SoftBank is ruining the whole industry," it just seemed a little overblown. So to me. there's no relief. For the U.S. investors, I, I, 
again, it sort of feels like people were making too much of a big deal of it on the way up, and now people are. There's too much gloating now, um, and I just don't think it's it. It was that like transformative. What's been more transformative in my mind is that many of the firms in venture are now taking a full stack approach. Uh, you know, Sequoia will invest from seed and they'll even have scout funds um, all the way through growth. Um, Andrews and Horowitz does the same. Insight does the same. There's a lot of these full stack firms um, that I've which gets written much less about in a way relative to the amount of press that SoftBank is, but I think has had a much larger impact on the venture landscape. What, what does it mean for entrepreneurs or for founders? It's tricky to navigate, I think. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, the, those firms have built larger sourcing teams. They have built more domain expertise and obviously, the more assets under management you have, the better you do on just fees alone. Um, so I understand the logic that has led people down this path. But it can be quite tricky as an entrepreneur because if you take money from one of those investors uh, and they don't lead every one of your rounds, then there's sort of certain questions about, well, what do they know? Like, why are they not leaning in on this? They have the capacity, so they could be leaning in on this, but they're not. So maybe there's something wrong that they don't want to talk about. So, so um, signaling is important in financial markets, uh, and um, and it's not quite clear to me yet how the signaling effects of these full stack firms will play out for the companies that they invest in. Interesting. You are from. Germany um, before you moved to the US. You were born in Franconia, which is southern Germany, which is where you have Munich, you have Vienna, you have Zurich. Uh, Nuremberg. Nuremberg. I was born close to Nuremberg. Okay. But like from, the, <laughs> from the area. Yeah, you have to be precise here. Um, what kind of role does this ecosystem in the Alpine foothills, such to say, play in the startup game? I don't have the most detailed view of it. Um, I do see a lot of positive things happening. Unternehmertum in Munich, which is also where Flixbus, I believe, came from, um, seems like a really vibrant endeavor. Uh, we've seen a number of startups come out of the TU München. Uh, we've backed one of them, which is called SimScale. Uh, I'm in the process of making a personal investment in a uh, fusion nuclear fusion company that will be headquartered in Munich. So it does feel like um, there's sort of a, a, a very um, flourishing system there. Uh, I should spend some more time in uh, my hometown of Nuremberg to figure out what's going on there. Oh, what do you expect? What do I expect to find? Uh, it's always harder for smaller cities, I believe. Um, a big part of uh, building a company is to have a large pool of people that you can recruit from and um, people who are um, risk takers who are willing to take startup risk. That does seem to correlate more with large cities. Interesting. What I've seen since I moved back to Germany, um, Munich in comparison to Berlin, I see like more of these kind of engineering driven companies based in Munich. Maybe that's because it's so well connected to other, you know, big corporations such as BMW, big insurance companies. Is this something 
that makes the region special or that's like probably different to to Berlin where where we where you see like more an e-commerce media uh, kind of startup not sure how long that'll be the case necessarily uh, a counterpoint to this for example is that some very technical startups in the crypto world are in Berlin. So right. um, I do think you get pockets of things. And when, once you get a pocket, you get more of that because you, uh, the way these ecosystems grow is that they grow around iconic companies often. So in Silicon Valley, one of the earliest iconic companies was Fairchild Semiconductor. And then many of the companies that were started after that were called the Fairchildren. Uh, so you get something like Zalando in Berlin and, you know, people who come out of that are more likely to start another e-commerce company than they are to start, let's say, a database company. Uh, so yes, you get these natural pockets. I'm not sure that they're that much related though necessarily um, to somehow the character of the city. Universities make a difference. So if you have a technical university like Munich does, that does help. Mm -hmm. The European Union wants to start a sovereign wealth fund uh, for $100 billion to invest in startups. $100 billion? Oh, you can't see it's a podcast I was doing. the. Uh... What were you doing? No, Explain. It's the, the, it's... <laughs> I was doing the Austin Powers. <laughs> oh, so, so what, do you think it's helpful or is it just like... It's definitely helpful. Um, I, uh, there is... Um, Around the world, um, sovereign wealth represents a large source of investable capital. And if organized the right way, will have a very positive impact on innovation, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. what, role can, what other role can regulators play into enabling more innovation, make it easier for startups to, to thrive? Well, the, the, the starting point in my mind always is... Um, starts with cities that are fun and highly livable cities, um, including coming back to an earlier part of the conversation of like are somewhat affordable so that young people who want to take risks and work at startups can live there. Uh, so that's a really important starting point. And this is why a city like Lisbon is doing very well uh, in, in, in European startup world. So uh, public transport... Public transport, clean, safe. Entertainment. Yes. Gardens, parks, yes, stuff all like of that. that. Okay. All of that. So that feels very important because most of these companies employ knowledge workers. They employ people who um, are, you know, it's not heavy lifting factory jobs. So it's a very different uh, type of um, uh, human capital that, that startups need to assemble. The second point is I do still think that um, Europe continues to have self-inflicted mistakes on regulation. Um, it's all well-meaning regulation, uh, but GDPR is a great example. Uh, many people, myself included, predicted that GDPR was going to help Google and Facebook uh, and hurt startups, and it did because the issue is that Google and Facebook can hire lots and lots of people to be GDPR compliant. A small startup can't do that. So there was actually a net shift of advertising dollars towards 
these big firms because they find it easier to to comply with with that type of regulation. Uh, there is reg- some regulation in Europe that I think is very enlightened and um, Europe should double down on. And that has to do with open banking. So uh, this idea that every bank account needs to have an API, uh, that's a terrific initiative that will foster competition. It's Initial implementation leaves some things to be desired, but the, that direction of thinking is uh, is great. And in fact, there is a um, bill for the first time in the U.S., I don't think it's going to go very far, introduced by Senator Mark Warner called the Access Bill, which takes its inspiration from open banking and suggests that APIs should be required um, for all sorts of platforms. And I believe... That's something where Europe could have a real um, leadership. And just to explain that to the audience, it's making data accessible for fintechs, for example, open up the banking uh, sector. So the idea of APIs in general is that you can somehow let third parties interoperate with what you already have. And so if I have my money at a bank and now I would like uh, a special insurance product to connect to this, um, do I now need to move my money somewhere else or an investment product? Um, or can I just connect that product to my existing account? And you know something similar could be true in the social space. So we have all these debates in the US right now about political advertising on Twitter and Facebook. Do you think Facebook will do like do something similar, remove political ads? I don't know. I personally think it's a bad idea that Twitter is removing political ads. Um, because it's a bad idea for two reasons. The first is now you've moved the problem to figuring out what is a political ad. If a um, if Exxon Mobile um, runs an ad over about their like clean tech efforts, is that a political ad? If um, Extinction Rebellion, uh, to pick an example, wants to run an ad. Um, inviting people to join them. Is that a political ad? So all of a sudden you're right. in the business of, of figuring out what a political ad is. Um, you could sort of say, well, an ad paid for by a candidate is a political ad. Very few ads are actually paid for by candidates. So like now you've just sort of figured out where to draw the line. All of this speaks to the fact that these systems have too much power. And so we shouldn't let them make certain decisions. They should be um, more decentralized. Uh, and so if... Similarly, Twitter was required, were to be required to have an API, then it would be very easy to have third-party plugins that tell you, for example, that rate the veracity of an ad. Right now, there's no, you can't create a plugin into Twitter's app. It just doesn't exist. So um, now it's a great irony because Twitter started out as an API. The, when we invested in Twitter, there were no Twitter apps owned by Twitter. Twitter was just an API and all the apps that people used to access Twitter were actually built by third parties. And it was only much, not much later, but significantly later in the history of Twitter that Twitter decided to shut down all these third-party clients and only promote their own clients. Uh, So I believe that's something that Europe could have a real leadership on, uh, is to basically require that all applications have APIs and be programmable. And it would, of course, require these companies to choose a different business model so or to at least offer two business models. And personally, I basically think that if I get an API, full API access, I would be willing to pay something that's somewhere in the whatever 25th to 50th percentile of what they make on their ad-supported users. Uh, so 
there is an opportunity for Europe to, because of the what there's already leadership in open banking, uh, if they double down on that and then applied that to other systems, there's a unique opportunity. And the idea is to make data more accessible because these data, like private data, data of customers, they all sit in the ecosystems of these big corporations. And that's basically where they right now they're, they're a little bit like, um, you know, Hotel California for data. I mean, you sort of can check in, but you can never leave. Um, and so they're, as a result, they're bad for competition and they're bad for innovation. The way all innovation in the information technology world has happened is that we built on top of things. So, you know, um, at, the very low level, your computer has something called the basic input-output system. Then the operating system sits on top of that. The applications sit on top of that. And then, you know, we've done this sort of layering via programming interfaces um, all the way in the stack. But then you get to these big, huge applications that everybody uses and suddenly they're no longer programmable. And so the thing that has gotten us this tremendous innovation for a long period of time We've cut it off at the layer of the applications, and that's why it's it's impossible for people to innovate on top of Twitter, to innovate on top of Facebook. So what can entrepreneurs do to push for more openness for, for data? Do they have to talk to their politicians? Do they have to join, I don't know, a lobby community? Because it's like really something that kind of... It's kind of important for all entrepreneurs who want to do something in in the data uh, in the data sector in the data industry. Well, there's always two modes of operation. One is building new and different things, and then the other is lobbying for change. And most entrepreneurs like to operate in the building new and different things mode and don't really want to spend their time trying to convince politicians to do things. So I actually think it behooves us as investors and also um, people who uh, understand the technology and understand why it needs to be regulated, not using industrial age laws, but creating new laws for the digital era. Um, it behooves all of us who understand this to spend our time on this. Very few entrepreneurs want to build products. They don't want to be spending their time in right. you know, lobbying politicians. But you wouldn't invest in a company that would build a social network or you wouldn't or would you? Well because there's already a big competitor well, we, up the we, market. We, we wouldn't invest today if we thought there wasn't some really new idea as to how you were going to go up against the big incumbents. For example, we're investors in DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo goes straight up against Google and search. But DuckDuckGo doesn't go up against Google by saying we have better search. They have admittedly worse search than Google, but they sort of say, look, we don't track you at all. We don't store IP addresses. We don't, we have no filter bubble. It's but the just market straight share up search. is pretty small. It's small, but it continues to grow. Uh, and search is an insanely large market. So even if you get to relatively small share, you can build a very large business right. in search. We were talking about the European ecosystem and how much more money went into this uh, this year, it would, like 20 billion. But compared to Silicon Valley or China, uh, it's still a very small amount. Should we be? Should this be enough for Europe, or should we try to raise that number? Well, 
everything in this kind of ecosystem building, it sort of does take time. Um, now, China putting a lot more money out partially has to do with the size of China. <laughs> uh, there, it's just a very big place with a lot of people and a lot of startups. So I don't know whether anybody has tried to do this math on a per capita basis as opposed to on a uh, aggregate basis. I think aggregates are confusing usually. So um, having said that, uh, now is a good time, for example, for a European sovereign wealth fund. Um, if that fund had been raised 10 years ago, I don't think it would have been a good idea because there wouldn't have been enough actually working companies. And then you just put the money out anyhow and you put in things that aren't actually working. So um, the, the the German expression, man kann das nicht übers Knie brechen, um, it, it comes to my mind. I mean, it's this idea, there's certain things you just can't force above a speed at which they are occurring. I mean, you can sort of push and you can make them go a little faster, but you can't 10x the development of an ecosystem. Uh, and so I'm very glad that there wasn't a European sovereign wealth fund trying to plow lots of money into tech 10 years ago. I would be very sad if there isn't one 10 years hence. So now seems like a very good time to get this off the ground because there's a large number of companies that you can put this money to work in in a way that'll actually help. We have like two digital superpowers like fighting against each, against each other, China on the one hand and the United States on the other hand. Where do you see Europe's role in a geopolitical innovation perspective? The US-China conflict is one thing that's on a lot of people's minds. What's even more on my mind personally is the climate crisis, uh, which is going to impact all of us. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter whether you live in China, Europe, or, or the US. And so um, a kind of, a, kind of um, a race to innovate between multiple big places in my mind, isn't bad per se. Uh, at dinner yesterday, somebody complained that China was making so much progress in medicine because they had stolen intellectual property from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. Uh, and I kind of made the point, I think cancer patients all around the world are going to be happy if we make faster progress. Uh, right. And we should maybe look at it that way. And I think um, it's going to be good for humanity if we make faster progress in quantum computing or nuclear fusion because we feel like we're in a bit of a race. Like those things in my mind are actually good. Um, it's always like getting some competitive juices flowing and sort of saying, hey, you know, um, wow, look at how much progress they are making. We should maybe redouble our efforts. It could be a net positive for humanity. Uh, the bigger question in my mind is, What are we doing about the climate crisis and what are we doing about the extraordinary um, income and wealth distribution problems that are fueling a lot of populist and generally um, populist movements that um, have been more on the side of uh, basically digging into nationalism, rekindling nationalism, uh, putting the individual nation state first, not thinking about the climate. Uh, and that I think is a super dangerous trend globally and that goes far beyond um, the sort of 
tension between the U.S. and China that has, you know, that has Brazil, that has lots and lots of countries that have these uh, right, somewhat right populist movements that really don't seem to care at all about the impending um, climate crisis that we have to deal with. Which is interesting because technology, on the other hand, is something that's always like like scaling internationally. It's always like, you know, beyond, it's going beyond national borders. Um, could like the idea of entrepreneurship, I don't know, help to overcome this nationalism, populism um, ideology? Uh, yes, if we figure out how to distribute the benefits from this new technology um, better across the population. As long as uh, the benefits seem to accrue to a very few people and leave a lot of people behind at, at the minimum on a relative basis, but in the US, a lot of people are off worse off on an absolute basis, Uh, as long as that's happening, uh, that's not a stable, that does not make the basis for a stable um, democ democratic government. And um, what happened in Chile just recently is a good illustration of that. So, um, Which is? Which is lots of political unrest um, over um, income and wealth inequality. When you think about Germany, what first pops into your mind? Other than the amazing food that my mother still makes every time I come to visit. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, um, things that pop into my mind are um, there's a, a, um, a thoroughness and a um, um, interest in getting things right. Uh, and, um, you know, the US, we're often about doing things fast. Uh, and um, not necessarily getting them right. You know, it's move fast and break things, as, uh, as Zuck Facebook's motto. Famous, famously said. Um, I think there's a n nice balance to be found between those two. And um, what I find very encouraging is that these days, uh, German startups uh, and German companies still have, I think, a certain rigor and, and, and desire to get things right. But there's a lot more of the, okay, let's also move fast and try a bunch of things out and not be afraid that some of those are not going to work. Um, but what else do I think of? Um, uh, I just, um, I think of friends I have there. And, um, and I think of the potential um, for all of us to work together on um, some of the extraordinary opportunities that are kind of ahead um, for humanity um, and to ward off some of the extraordinary threats that we're facing. It's a, it's such an incredible time to be alive. We have, um, we had the sort of Wright brothers moment of quantum computing. Um, we have uh, extraordinary breakthroughs with uh, technologies like CRISPR. We, um, have made extraordinary strides. I presented a bunch of slides at our annual meeting today, extraordinary strides in uh, sort of the cost of kilowatt hour of solar has come way down. Wind has come way down. Battery storage has come down extraordinarily over the last 10 years, even um, EVs are on the rise. Uh, so there's a lot of positive things that are happening. There's a lot of things to genuinely be excited about. And then at the same time, Uh, the climate crisis is much more imminent and much more severe than people understand. 
And so it's sort of a, it's, it's a, it's quite the fascinating time to be alive. You mentioned quantum computing and CRISPR, which is exciting new technologies. But on the other hand, many people are like fearful towards these new developments and innovations. How can entrepreneurs or people who work in science or people who invest in these kind of technologies make sure to include people who probably don't really understand this technology, are kind of, you know, hesitant to really, you know, get to learn more about it. What can they do to include them, you know, towards this bright future that you just uh, talked about? There, there are many aspects to this question. So one obviously is one of education and making sure people understand um, what these technologies do and how they work and what they can be used for. But then there are also questions of uh, practical um, politics. Uh, so you know, Germany obviously has a much better welfare system than, than the US does. But even Germany is caught a little bit in the past. Um, there was a very big um, uh, thing that just happened. The Bundesverfassungsgericht, the uh, Supreme Court in Germany, um, basically just declared that the uh, sanctioned portions of Hartz IV are um, uh, against the German constitution. Um, and I think that's a big deal because that potentially opens the door for moving away from the framing of hard sphere as it is today towards more of a framing of a basic income and potentially a universal basic income. Um, I believe that for us to be able to embrace the potential of these new technologies, we really need to figure out how to leave the industrial age behind. And so as long as we're wedded to the industrial age in our policies, whether that's competition policy, whether that's employment policy, uh, it's going to make it difficult um, for people to understand why this is a good thing um, for all of us instead of why this isn't just a good thing for a few people who are going to be wealthy investors or wealthy entrepreneurs. What's, what is still German about you? I don't know what's German about anybody. <laughs> um, I believe that um, having been exposed for anybody to two cultures for some prolonged period of time is maybe one of the singularly healthiest things that can happen to any human being. Um, so much of what we somehow take as some kind of human nature, um, this is just how people are, is really something that's deeply culturally determined. And um, I don't know how one could arrange this, but if everybody could live at least a year or a couple of years in a different culture, uh, I think um, a lot of problems that we have in the world today would kind of go away because people would realize, oh, that's not some fundamental law of human nature. That's just how we do things here in this particular place. Albert Wenger, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to have been here. And that was our first Bits and Pretzels podcast. We'll be coming to you on a weekly basis now with great guests who are ready to share their stories. I hope you enjoyed the show and will let your friends and colleagues know about it. You can subscribe and listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from or go and visit bitsandpretzels.com. You can also find us on social media, so please do share, like and comment. 
If you want to recommend a guest for our show, yes, you can even nominate yourself. Or if you just want to tell us your thoughts, please write to podcast at bitsandpretzels.com. We are always happy to hear from you and curious about your feedback. I am Britta Vettling. Thank you for listening.